You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Let's start off with a little story courtesy of English poet and cartographer George Waldron. In 1726, Waldron was living on the Isle of Man, smack dab between Britain and Ireland, reporting on the island's trade for the British government. While there, he authored a description of the Isle of Man with some useful and entertaining reflections on the laws, customs, and manners of the inhabitants. It's from Waldron's long-winded title that we get the first written account of a creature known as the Mahdi-Doo, or, as Waldron called it, the moth Doog. They say that an apparition called in their language the Moth Doog in the shape of a large black spaniel with curled shaggy hair was used to haunt Peel Castle and has since frequently been seen in every room, but particularly in the guard chamber where, as soon as candles were lighted, it came and lay down before the fire in presence of all the soldiers, who at length, by being so much accustomed to the sight of it, lost great part of the terror they were seized with at its first appearance. They still, however, retained a certain awe, as believing it was an evil spirit which only waited permission to do them harm, and for that reason forbore swearing and all profane discourse while in its company. But, though they endured the shock of such a guest when all together in a body, none cared to be left alone with it, being the custom, therefore, for one of the soldiers to lock the gates of the castle at a certain hour and carry them to the captain, to whose apartment, as I said before, the way led through a church, they agreed among themselves that whoever was to succeed the ensuing night, his fellow in this errand should accompany him, that went first, and by this means, no man would be exposed singly to the danger. For I forgot to mention that the moth Doog was always seen to come from that passage at the close of day, and return to it again as soon as the morning dawned, which made them look on this place as its peculiar residence. One night, a fellow being drunk and by the strength of his liquor rendered more daring than ordinary, laughed at the simplicity of his companions, and though it was not his turn to go with the keys, would needs take that office upon him to testify his courage. All the soldiers endeavored to dissuade him, but the more they said, the more resolute he seemed, and swore that he desired nothing more than that moth Doog would follow him, as it had done the others, for he would try if it were dog or devil." After having talked in a very reprobate manner for some time, he snatched up the keys and went out of the guardroom. In some time after his departure, a great noise was heard, but nobody had the boldness to see what occasioned it, till the adventurer returning, they demanded knowledge of him, 
but as loud and noisy as he had been at leaving them, he was now become sober and silent enough, for he was never heard to speak more. And though all the time he lived, which was three days, he was entreated by all who came near him either to speak or if he could not do that to make some signs by which they might understand what had happened to him, yet nothing intelligible could be got from him, only that by the distortion of his limbs and features it might be guessed that he died in agonies more than is common in a natural death. The moth Duke was, however, never seen again in the castle, nor would anyone attempt to go through that passage, for which reason it was closed up and another way made. The Moth Dug or Moddy Dew or Black Dog is just one of hundreds of spooky monsters, ghosts, and demons said to walk the Isle of Man, which should come as no surprise, an isolated, misty, mossy island occupied since the Bronze Age, festooned with stone ruins and castles, and rich in Gaelic history and folklore, which, let's be frank about this, those Gaelics, they like themselves some creepy stories. So, you have the Madidu, and you have the Bagane, a race of giant ogres with big crimson mouths decked with tusks and covered in thick black hair. The Bagane of St. Trinian's was named for the church it was said to regularly rip the roof off of. And you have the Tarushti, or water bull, which looks every bit like a normal bull except that it lives in the water and only comes on land to mate with terrestrial cattle, much to the chagrin of the cow, who then gives birth to a pile of lumpen flesh and dies. There's the water goblin of Nakensen's pool, which one evening called out through the mist to a young woman out searching for her lost calf. Kebig, Kebig, the girl called out. Kebig's here, Kebig's here, the voice answered. I'm coming, I'm coming. The people at Shiberferic heard her respond through the soupy fog. They never heard or saw her again, taken by the fairies in the shrouded evening. The Isle of Man is home to more mermaids, witches, spirits, and particularly fairies than you could shake a stick at, a thing I strongly presume you are not supposed to do, but it's nearly Halloween. So we're not going to spend this episode on just any old campfire tale. No, sir. We're going to go right for the cream of the crop. The most baffling, bone-chilling, blood-curdling story in all of Manx history. Some call it the Dalby Spook. Others call it the Thing in the Walls. But not me. Submitted for the approval of The Constant, A History of Getting Things Wrong, I'm Mark Chrysler, and today's episode is... Jeff, the Talking Mongoose. Yes, I know, it doesn't sound very scary. And sure, I think we can safely wager that it won't be adapted into a Blumhouse horror flick anytime soon, but stick with me, because there's something profoundly creepy buried in this facially silly premise. The story of Jeff the Talking Mongoose opens so much like the first act of a classic horror movie that I almost wonder if these events somehow served as a sort of prototype. It begins with a small family, the Irvings. Jim Irving worked as a traveling agent, selling pianos across England for a Canadian manufacturer. But in 1915, the First World War made shipping pianos across the Atlantic impracticable, and so Jim moved his family from mainland England in Liverpool to the small village of Dalby, on the Isle of Man, to make a go of living off the land at a small, isolated, lonely farmstead called Dorlish Cashin. 
The land was and is beautiful. Vast rolling fields of green grass, purple heather, and blue bell wildflowers. Steep cliff faces overlooking brilliant blue ocean. It's also not especially great for farming. The soil is rocky and full of scrub, and when winter sets in, the winds sweep in from the northwest and don't stop until spring. Those fields of grass and heather and wildflowers, so shockingly emerald and purple and blue, rely on a bad sign. Nothing so large as a small bush will grow at Dorlish Cashin. Before Jim purchased it, Dorlish Cashin had sat uninhabited for 40 years, since the death of Pierre Baum in 1875. Though there's no room for it in the Jeff the Talking Mongoose movie script, Pierre's life is a fascinating digression. He was the son of a Marseille wig maker who, through a sort of Dickensian happenstance, became the private secretary to King Ferdinand of Sicily when he was 18. After that, he returned to France where he earned his keep as a double agent until he had to flee under threat of death back to Italy. There, he either became deeply religious and made a pilgrimage to Rome to meet Pope Leo XII, or else became a radical atheist and involved himself in several sex scandals, probably a bit of both, somehow. Either way, in 1827, he moved to England, where he worked at a variety of ventures, as a theatrical agent, as a pub promoter, as a curator of experimental gardens, but always also as a socialist radical, preaching, lecturing, and writing on the virtues of communal ownership. He was intricately connected to the socialist movements of the day in both England and France and is credited with helping popularize the utopian Owenite movement, which we talked about back in our episode on Flat Earthers Reductio Ad Absurdum. In the background, though, Pierre-Henri Joseph Baum was using his intimate knowledge of the French and English socialist movements to make more money, selling their secrets to both the French and English governments. He was also sleeping with Charlotte Baum, which doesn't sound so bad, except Charlotte's last name wasn't Baum because she was married to Pierre Baum, but because she was his half-sister. In 1832, she died in childbirth, along with their infant daughter, and Pierre sold both bodies to be anatomized at University College London. This was a scandal, the selling of the bodies, not the incest, and many accused Pierre of murdering his sister-wife and child. He became known as the Islington Monster. After a brief prison stint, he managed to claw his way back slowly to respectability by, what else, real estate dealings. In the 1850s, he moved to the Isle of Man for reasons that nobody can quite agree on. He bought up two farmsteads on the island, including Dorlish Cashin, naturally, though he mostly rented them out, preferring to stay in a small, book-stuffed room in Douglas, where he slept in a hammock strung from the roof, ate a diet comprised exclusively of artichokes, dried peas, raw cabbage, and snails, which he seems to have believed to be good for the health, the spirit, and the pocketbook, and refused entry to anyone who didn't know a secret knock. When he died in 1875, the Manx people were surprised to learn that the wacky, miserly, eccentric loner had left a large fortune to a philanthropic trust that set up scholarships, musical training, and a national collection of art for the Island of Man. But his near-barren farms sat unsold and fallow until the Irvings came along. Improbably, they turned Dorlish Cashin into a profitable and stable farm for a while. Jim and his wife Margaret moved in permanently around 1917 and made numerous improvements to the old farmhouse along with their eldest son, Gilbert. Their daughter, Elsie, a young woman widowed by the war, remained back in Liverpool. In 1918, Jim and Margaret had a third child, whom they named Vori, the Manx form of Mary. 
For the first 10 years of Vori's life, she lived in relative comfort at the temporarily prosperous Dorlish Cashin with her father, her mother, and her brother. But the farm economy began to tumble in the late 20s, and Gilbert moved away to London to find better opportunities in 1928. Without the help of his son, without money to hire hands, and with his body aging, Jim Irving had no choice but to let the fields return to mossy grass and give up his crops for a small flock of grazing sheep, a couple of goats, a dozen geese, a couple chickens, and Mona, the family dog. That was all. Until 1931, when the mongoose showed up. At first, it wasn't a mongoose at all, or at least no one knew to call it one. In the autumn, the Irvings noticed a small animal in the yard, which Jim described as something like a yellow weasel. Soon after, the family noticed noises coming from the walls, scratching, spitting, and crawling, which they commonsensically attributed to the weaselish thing they'd seen outside. Whatever it was that the Irvings were listening to, it was listening back. Jim was trying everything to get rid of the varmint. He set out poison, laid out traps, banged on the matchboard walls. None of it worked. One evening, feeling desperate, he tried to scare off the intruder by growling like a dog. Instead of running away, the skittering thing in the walls growled back. Not in the growl of a weasel or a mongoose, if there are such growls, or even in the growl of a dog. It was the growl of Jim Irving, echoing back at him in a higher register. Jim tried other sounds, farm animals and bird songs, and the mimic repeated them back, helium-pitched oinks and moos and tweets. Eventually, the thing in the walls began to gurgle and sputter like a baby. And finally, it spoke. Okay, let's hold up a minute and acknowledge the obvious. This story is very silly. It's silly straight from the title, and it only gets sillier as it goes. But it's not just silly. It's also... Gosh, what is the adjective? Disquieting, maybe? Yeah, it's also disquieting. The silliness and the disquiet don't just coexist either. They tumble off of and add to one another. So let's tromp through the silly fields first, and then we'll slip into the murky, treeless woods of uncertainty that line the borders of Dorlish Cashin. Fascinated by the animal impressions and the infant-like babbling, the Irvings began to sing and recite nursery rhymes to the thing within the walls, which soon enough began repeating them back in its Mr. Punch voice. Within a few days, the voice was talking all on its own. I'm the ghost of a weasel, and I will haunt you with rude noises and clanking chains, he explained early on. Later, he reassured the Irvings, or the Irvings assured everyone else, that there was nothing supernatural to the voice. He wasn't the ghost of anything. He wasn't even a weasel, he said. But... Just a little extra, extra clever mongoose. Somewhat interestingly, there were mongooses on man, at least at one point. There are no foxes on the island, so the rabbit population grows out of control, and a farm just 8 or 10 miles away from Dorlish Cashin had imported Indian mongooses to remedy that problem several decades previous. Whether any were still alive in the 1930s is hard to say, though some sightings have been reported even in the last 20 years. Whether the Irvings would have known about the Iowans' history with the animals is similarly hard to pin down. Of course, even if there were mongooses on the Isle of Man, that is hardly an explanation for the Irving's visitor, which soon started calling itself Jeff. He himself 
spelled it G-E-F. For one thing, the mongooses imported to hunt rabbits were without the power of speech. I mean, I assume they were, at least, or else they were so commonly capable of talking that nobody thought it was worth remarking upon. That's unlikely. But there were more subtle ways in which Jeff seemed to differ from them. Jeff didn't generally like being seen, but Jim and Margaret each caught an occasional glimpse, and Vori said she saw him straight on several times. According to her description, Jeff was much smaller than a mongoose, more like the size of a squirrel, with a big floofy tail and a flat, hedgehog-like snout. Most strikingly, in the place of where you'd expect to find a mongoose's forepaws, Jeff instead had two disproportionately large hands, which he used to sporadically chuck breakable household knickknacks around the farm. He also used his hands for hunting. Jeff would regularly stalk and kill rabbits, and then bring them to the house for Margaret to cook in exchange for one of his preferred foodstuffs, bacon or bananas or chocolate. But he didn't bite the rabbits or scratch them. He strangled them to death with his enormous mitts. What a handy little helper! Jeff was becoming a regular part of the family, to a limited degree. I mean, he'd bring food to the door, and he'd host regular sing-alongs at night, especially of his favorite song, Carolina Moon, as sung by Gene Austin. Carolina Moon keeps But Jeff was also creepy as hell. He regularly burst into temper tantrums, throwing silverware into the walls and stones into Margaret in the yard. He'd scream and groan loudly for long periods of time, and he'd say the creepiest shit you've ever heard a mongoose say. Once, when asked about his nature, Jeff responded, I am not evil. I could be if I wanted. You don't know what damage or harm I could do if I were aroused. I could kill you all. Jeff liked to sleep in Vori's room, which sometimes scared her, so Jim and Margaret asked if she wanted to stay in their room instead. I'll follow her wherever you move her, Jeff hissed. That night, all three stayed in the master bed, with the door locked and barricaded. Jeff banged and cursed at it before screaming, I'm coming in! At which point, a pot flew across the room and crashed into the bed frame. Now that sounds less like a mongoose and more like a poltergeist, right? But Jim, Margaret, and Vori, and especially Jeff himself, insisted he was a corporeal animal. Sometimes Jim conjectured in his diary that the mongoose had special powers, invisibility and shape-shifting in particular, and Jeff himself frequently made statements that contradicted his insistence that he was a mere mammal. I am an earthbound spirit, he'd say, or... I am the fifth dimension! I am the eighth wonder of the world! But soon enough, he'd go back to his mongoose line. I am not a spirit. If I were a spirit, I could not kill rabbits. I am a little extra, extra clever mongoose. A line that got more complicated as time went on. I was born near Delhi, India on June 7th, 1852. I've been shot at by Indians. I am a marsh mongoose. And more complicated. I was brought to England from Egypt by a man named Holland. When I was in India, I lived with a tall man who wore a green turban on his head. And more complicated. Then I lived with a deformed man, a hunchback. It's all very baffling, 
The nature of Jeff's existence seemed well beyond the Irving family's powers of deduction. Luckily, a whole lot more people were about to get involved. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. If something is preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. They'll assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment in under 24 hours from signing up. It's not self-help, it's professional counseling provided at your own pace. Send messages to your counselor anytime and get timely, thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without having to leave your home. BetterHelp is committed to offering great therapeutic care at an affordable price. It's cheaper than traditional counseling with financial aid available, and you can change counselors anytime you want. What's more, it's available worldwide, with counselors specializing in areas that might not be available to you locally, like self-esteem, LGBT matters, stress, trauma, anxiety, or depression. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and there's a reason why. Their service is convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. On November 7th, 2000, more than 100 million Americans went to the polls to register their vote for president. But not me, because I was too young, by 13 days. Which irked me beyond irking. I wanted to vote so badly, and since I couldn't, I had to content myself to pestering everyone in my life, trying to impress upon them the importance that they vote where I could not. And now, I get to do that to you. Voting should be free, fair, and safe to everyone eligible. You don't have to wait until November 3rd to cast your ballot. Be an October voter. In most states, you can vote early in October. Request your mail ballot, return your completed ballot in the mail like me or in person, or vote early at an early voting location. There's no time to waste. Treat every day like election day to make sure that all voices are heard. Make a plan to vote. Be an October voter. Visit andstillivote.org to join the fight for voting rights today. Paid for by the Leadership Conference Education Fund. The news of Jeff the Talking Mongoose first hit the press in October of 1931. 
Then the stories only spread as far as the local papers, and Jeff's name is nowhere to be found in them. There's a mysterious animal that's begun talking, or maybe some local teenagers playing a prank? He makes noises in the walls and picks up gossip from down the road. Soon the word coalesced and spread, across the island, onto the mainland, and all the way to London. In January of 1932, the Manchester Daily Dispatch sent a reporter to Dorlish Cashin to get to the bottom of Jeff. He was greeted at the door by Jim Irving, who told him flatly, There are no spooks here. Nothing that has happened is supernatural. I am being worried to death by crowds of people visiting the place. Come in, I will tell you about it. By the end of the visit, Jim had failed remarkably in his attempts to dissuade the journalist, who wrote, The mysterious man-weasel of Dorlish Cashin has spoken to me today. Investigation of the most remarkable animal story that has ever been given publicity, a story which is finding credence all over the island, leaves me in a state of considerable perplexity. Had I heard a weasel speak? I do not know. But I do know that I have heard today a voice which I should never have imagined could issue from a human throat that the people who claim it was the voice of the strange weasel seem sane, honest, and responsible folk, and not likely to indulge in a difficult, long-drawn-out, and unprofitable practical joke to make themselves the talk of the world, and that others had had the same experience as myself. Less than a month after him, a more thorough investigation of Jeff began. Florence Milburn was a resident of Peel, the largest town in the near vicinity of Dorlish Cashin, and I can't say anything else about her involvement or relationship to the Irvings, or to Jeff for that matter, aside from this. In February, she wrote a letter detailing the first act of the Dalby spook, the family seeing a strange animal in the yard, hearing it in the walls, etc. She explained how Jim Irving had barked at it and been barked at in return, and that eventually it had begun to speak. She addressed this letter to Mr. Harry Price director of the National Laboratory of Psychical Research. Harry Price was interested in the paranormal from a young age. When he was eight years old in Shropshire, he had the chance to see an act he described in his autobiography as The Great Sequa, which seems to have been an English medicine show dressed up as an authentic display of Native American magic. The Great Sequa would set up his display in town and announce that he was there to, quote, extract every bad tooth in the country and cure every disease of those who came before him. The tooth extractions were no different or better than dentistry of the time would have provided. Worse, actually, as an actual dentist might have delivered anesthetic before ripping out your molars. Instead of that, the Great Sequa distracted his throbbing-mouthed patients with magic tricks. He pulled doves from empty hats, turned one coin into two, then four, then zero. A handkerchief materialized from one sleeve and disappeared, then from the other, then from a pocket. And just when you thought you knew where it would show up next, pop, out came your tooth. Harry Price was entranced. Not by the medicine, and not by the magic, but by the trick. He wanted to know how it was done. He began reading any book he could find on stage magic, practicing his palm in place and his card forces. When he was 15, he helped found the Carlton Theatre Group in Wimbledon, London, which performed a play he wrote titled The Septic, about a haunted house in Shropshire. Wait, The Septic? Oh, that's, I'm sure that's supposed to be The Skeptic, right? No, there it is, The Septic. That's scary in a completely different way. In 1920, Price joined the Society for Psychical Research, which had been formed in the early 1880s as the first institution to formally investigate paranormal phenomena, mediums, haunted houses, seances, telepathy, and the like. Harry Price's expertise at close-up magic 
made him a particularly adept septic, er, skeptic. In 1922, he made a splash by debunking William Hope, a carpenter who had been taking photographs of ghosts since 1905. Hope made a successful career out of snapping pictures of bereaved clients in his dark sitting room and then revealing the spectral image of their lost loved ones standing next to them. When Price came to investigate Hope's method, he surreptitiously changed out the plates in his camera bag so that any photos taken should have had a logo on them. Hope managed to photograph a ghostly woman standing next to Harry Price, but the photo didn't have the logo because, Price knew, Hope had been switching out the blank plates for doctored ones that he had already pre-exposed with the ghostly images. William Hope has been found guilty of deliberately substituting his own plates for those of a sitter. The medium brings to the sitting a duplicate slide and faked plates for fraudulent purposes, Price's report read in part. It made a big splash. The Society for Psychical Research had been formed by spiritualists as well as septics, skeptics, and they weren't happy with Price undermining hope. One prominent member convinced 84 of his fellow spiritualists to resign in protest. He went on to threaten and besmirch Price for years, and his name was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Ooh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. We are going to get to you one of these days. Mark my words. Despite the efforts of Sherlock Holmes' ridiculous author, Harry Price continued racking up famous debunkings. He exposed the Polish medium Jan Gizek, who was famous for his seances during which objects frequently levitated and a strange ectoplasmic spirit animal tended to materialize. Price caught him using his feet to move the objects and using his hand in a black stocking to create the ghostly snake. From there on, he was involved in so many famous and infamous paranormal cases that we can't possibly talk about them all. Uh, we've already talked about one of them just a few episodes back on Apocalypse Now and Then when someone sent him what was supposed to be Joanna Southcott's prophetical box. Maybe my favorite of his investigations, before Jeff, obviously, took place in 1931 when an old black magic manuscript was left at the National Laboratory of Psychical Research, of which Price was then the director. It held within its pages the stages of a ritual that could only be performed on the 100th anniversary of the death of Goethe, on the top of the Brucken, the highest peak in the German Harz Mountains. There, at the appointed time, Price and his colleagues followed the manuscript to the letter in an attempt to transmute a goat into, quote, a youth of surpassing beauty. No one was very surprised by the failure. Ah, oh, Goaty, you're beautiful to me. By the time Florence Milburn wrote Price, he was being bombarded by requests. The Eiffel Tower wanted him to come and investigate a souvenir kiosk at its tip where the owners believed a ghost was stealing trinkets. A man wrote to say that he could demonstrate to Price the practice of astral projection if he were only willing to come visit him and also take a large dose of peyote. A woman showed up, day after day, at the doorstep of the NLPR, begging that they exhume her recently buried brother, whom she insisted was not dead, but merely hypnotized. But even in a world of ghosts and psychics and Svengalis, Jeff the Talking Mongoose stuck out. At that moment, Price was busy investigating a medium named Rudy Schneider, who he eventually concluded was using the same sorts of time-worn tricks as William Hope. But... He found the story of Jeff too bizarre and weird to put out of mind. So he asked a friend and colleague, Captain James Dennis, to go down and check the scene for him. 
Dennis showed up at Dorlish Cashin on February 26th, where the family gave him the lowdown on Jeff's activity, habitat, and habits. But there was no sign of the mongoose. They showed him around the house, all the cracks in the walls and the braces in the ceiling from which Jeff regularly spied on or threw things at people. But there was no sign of the mongoose. Finally, they gave up, and Captain Dennis headed for the door. Who's that bloody man? Jeff screeched from within the walls. I've been looking at that man, and I don't like him. He does not believe in me. He's a downer. The next day, while having afternoon tea with the Irvings, a large knitting needle came soaring by the captain and clinked off the teapot. Jim explained that this wasn't personal, that Jeff was just always throwing things. Just a few hours later, the house erupted into an enveloping cacophony of bangs and screams and booms surrounding Captain Dennis on all sides, culminating in a chair being thrown to the ground in Vori's room. That night, Dennis tried to sneak up on Jeff when the mongoose was upstairs talking to Margaret, but he tripped on the stairs, alerting Jeff, who seemed to scurry away and refused to show himself to James Dennis again. The captain returned for a second visit just a few weeks later and again heard Jeff talking several times. On his final night there, he asked if Jeff would give him some evidence to take back to Harry Price. Some hair, maybe. Before he left, he found a few tufts in a bowl on the mantle, which Jeff said he pulled from his eyebrows and tail. Harry Price sent the fur sample to F. Martin Duncan, who had become famous shooting the earliest nature documentaries starting in 1903 and for being one of the first to shoot film of the microscopic world through what was called the microbioscope. Under the microbioscope, Duncan concluded that the hairs weren't from a mongoose or a rat or a rabbit or a squirrel or any other sort of rodent. Duncan suspected that they belonged to some sort of long-haired dog. Maybe a sheepdog. Like Mona, the Irving's dog. Captain Dennis had come away from his farmhouse visits convinced. Harry Price was intrigued. He decided to go meet Jeff and Mona for himself. He arrived on July 30th, 1935, along with historian, biographer, and BBC broadcaster Richard Lambert. Just like when Dennis first showed up, Jeff was nowhere to be found. But unlike the first time, Jeff didn't make himself known at the end of the night. Or the next one, or the next one. There was no sign of Jeff anywhere for Price's entire visit. The Irvings did everything within their British power to make the men comfortable, but in spite of all the tea and all the empire, there wasn't a single solitary trace of Jeff from the time Harry Price arrived to the moment he left. The whole thing was a bust, except for Mona, from whom Harry had managed to snip a few bits of fur. F. Martin Duncan confirmed that they were the same as the first sample he had examined. Almost as soon as Price was out the door, Jeff was back. He told the Irvings he'd gone on a little holiday because he didn't want to see Harry, the man who, quote, puts the kibosh on the spirits. But that wasn't the end of the investigations. Next up to Cashin's Gap came Nandor Fodor, a former associate of Sigmund Freud, who at the time was the London correspondent for the American Society for Psychical Research. Fodor was, in general, less skeptical, or s- skeptical than Harry Price. He was the first person to suggest a now very popular theory of hauntings, writing, In some as yet unknown manner, a part of you may refuse to be confined within your body. It may perform your unconscious desires even though you think you have nothing to do with it. When this happens, you have a poltergeist. 
but he wasn't a sap. In his investigations, he uncovered a great number of frauds, especially among spiritualists and mediums. After a week on the Isle of Man, however, Fodor had concluded that Jeff was neither poltergeist nor phony. Instead, well, fine, let's just get to it, shall we? Let's get on with it. What was Jeff? A hoax? A spirit? A hallucination? A gas leak? Or, maybe, a talking mongoose? What makes the story of Jeff so intriguing, and ultimately what potentially makes it frightening, is that while it's so ridiculous, it's also ridiculously difficult to explain. The fur being taken from Mona the Sheepdog seems pretty damning, and the other forensic evidence of Jeff's existence is nearly as bad. Later on in his investigation, Harry Price left some blocks of plasticine on the rafters where Jeff was said to frequently hang out, with a request that the mongoose, or whatever he was, give him some footprints, which Jeff obliged. The prints match the descriptions of Jeff, two tiny little animal paws in the rear with much larger three-fingered hands in front. British zoologist Reginald Innes Pockock, former superintendent of the London Zoo and researcher for the British Museum, analyzed the imprints and came away with less than sunny results. He said they were certainly not made by a mongoose, for starters. He thought that maybe one of the prints could belong to a dog, but seemed dubious even of that. He noted that the prints didn't have any sort of pattern in them. They were totally smooth, like you might get if you drew them into the plasticine with a stick. Most hopefully, Vori convinced the camera-shy Jeff to pose for a series of photos, taken standing on a wooden gate at the top of the road leading to the farm. And they are... weird. Some have argued that they look like someone snapped a few pictures of a polecat. Others say Jeff looks like a stuffed animal posed on the fence. And me? I don't know. There's something shifty and protean about the animal, or whatever it is, in Vori's photographs. Something unclear, even though the image is not. Whatever it is, though, it is not a mongoose, and surely not a spirit. The most obvious and likely explanation is that Jeff was a fraud, but that raises the question of how the fraud was perpetrated, and by whom. In the earliest reporting, the Manx papers suggested that some local delinquent teenagers were pranking the Irvings, but that... That seems like a non-starter of an explanation. Jeff stuck around for years, at all hours of the day, and while some little vandals might have been able to sneak up next to the house and produce some noise, how would they throw things around indoors or take food from the rafters without being seen? Now, if fraud is the answer, then somebody in the house, Jim, Margaret, or Vori, or some combination of the three, must have been responsible. But there are issues here, too. Let's start with Vori, who seems to be the most obvious candidate. At least in the beginning, Jeff mostly appeared to her, and in many ways shared the teenager's temperament, not to mention her taste for sweets and bacon, which you'll remember Jeff exchanged with Margaret for strangled rabbits. Vori was also pretty skilled at and interested in hunting rabbits, which feels more than coincidental. And most intriguingly, in 2001, Manx Radio broadcast an interview with a childhood friend of Vori's named Kathleen Green, who said that Vori had learned to convincingly throw her voice. However, if you were ever a teenager, fascinated by the prospect of throwing your voice and sought out training in the subject, and obviously I'm referring to a hypothetical teenager who wasn't myself, you might have learned that there is no such thing as throwing your voice. It's a trick performed by magicians and ventriloquists via misdirection or hidden speakers or similar trickery. Voice throwing doesn't explain anything. 
it is a thing that itself demands an explanation. So, no offense to the then 80-something-year-old Green, but I'm not putting much stock in her testimony. In contrast, Walter McGraw, a journalist writing for Fate magazine, tracked Vorby down in 1970, when she was in her mid-50s, and asked her about the Jeff affair. Vori didn't look back on the time fondly. She said that the whole thing had made her miserable for quite a long time. Her classmates called her the spook, and adults accused her of ventriloquism, mental illness, or both. She said that eventually, she had to leave the island to get away from her reputation, and that she had never been married because she didn't know how she would explain Jeff to a potential husband or his family. When asked directly, she responded, It was not a hoax, and I wish it had never happened. Yes, there was a little animal who talked and did all those other things. He said he was a mongoose and said we should call him Jeff. But I do wish he had left us alone. So if Jeff was Vori all along, she was still incredibly committed to the bit. More troublingly, Jeff was known to occasionally speak in different languages, ones that Vori didn't speak. But Jim Irving did, or at least a little. And he makes an interesting suspect himself. Like Vori, Jeff shares a lot of interests with Jim. They both liked reading the newspaper, they had similar tastes in music, and both the beginning and the end of Jeff's haunting coincide with Jim. When Jeff first started speaking in the house, he was heard to plead late at night, Oh, let me go, Jim. Let me go. Jim would ask him where he wanted to go. I must go back. To the underground! Well, be off. I'm not keeping you, Jim would respond. And then Jeff would intone, Vanished! He would hop away and disappear until the next time. Over the years, Jeff began to show up less and less frequently, but he seemed to disappear almost entirely right when Jim took sick with pernicious anemia. Jim died in the farmhouse at Dorlish Cashin with his family all around him including his older daughter Elsie and son Gilbert. Both Elsie and Gilbert seem to have been circumspect uh, about all the Jeff business, but both of them attested that they heard strange voices in the rafters during that final visit and that they saw a broom sweep the hearth of the fireplace on its own as their father died, after which all abnormal sounds and sightings seemed to cease. But if Jim was responsible for Jeff's existence, he truly does not seem to have known it. Jim Irving was a detailed and persistent diarist. He wrote daily about the most humdrum details of his life on man. For years, he chronicled the most banal features, the price of groceries, the weather, the comings and goings of neighbors, and Jeff. It's clear in his personal writings that if Jeff was a hoax, Jim wasn't in on it. Or else, if he was, he was even more committed than Vori would have had to have been. That leaves Margaret about whom we know the least, other than that all the researchers describe her as formal and conservative, a meticulous host and proper English lady of an old order. In other words, she seems constitutionally the least likely to have dreamt up such a stunt. Some locals, interviewed by Nandor Fodor, maintained that Jeff was a fake engineered by Margaret and Vori in tandem. The women of the house, they say, were miserable on the failing farm and hoped a talking mongoose would convince their husband to move them back to the mainland. I'm skeptical of that hypothesis, too, though. For one, Vori had never known life back in Liverpool. She'd always lived on the island. More importantly, if Jeff had been cooked up to scare Jim away, he did a very bad job of it. 
Finally, according to Jim Irving's diary, he had spoken to and seen Jeff several times when both his wife and daughter were nowhere around. No, I think if The Haunting of Dorless Cashin was a con, all of the Irvings would have had to be in on it. That too raises the question of motive. The Irvings don't seem to have wanted the attention, fame, or infamy they received. Jim was a bit more interested in sharing the story than Vori or Margaret, but even he doesn't seem to have appreciated most of the press, let alone the curious crowds who came around his property asking for Jeff. On several occasions, the family was propositioned for cash. The Daily Mail offered to purchase photos of Jeff, and an American theater promoter offered $50,000 for the rights to Jeff, with half of that money delivered up front, no questions asked. The Irvings, in their failing, miserable farmstead, turned it all down. Harry Price found this to be the most vexing part of the problem. He assumed the family was in cahoots, but he had seen them do everything within their power to keep publicity and money away. So what was it all for? He loosely concluded that they must have been suffering from a sort of folie a famille, of family madness, perhaps driven by their isolation, loneliness, and hardship. But even that explanation falls short once you take in the full breadth of Jeff's movements and appearances. See, a whole bunch of people heard, saw, or experienced Jeff when none of the Irvings were around or otherwise able to have projected him. And even spookier, Jeff frequently knew things that none of the family could have known. Take Captain Dennis. He made a third visit to Dorlet Cashin in 1935, and there he heard from Jeff when he was alone in the house, and again when he was outside in the yard. Both times, he could see that Vori was at least 100 feet away, inside when he was out, outside when he was in, and otherwise occupied. He also witnessed Jeff throwing pebbles at the guest bedroom window, when all three Irvings were inside with him. The accounts don't stop there. Family friends, journalists, neighbors, school children, even local government officials. The list of people who encountered Jeff either when the Irvings weren't around or when they were so occupied that they couldn't possibly have been responsible is a long one. Jeff's access to secrets is even more fascinating. He was said to covertly or invisibly ride the bus around the town of Peel, where he would pick up gossip from the riders and even follow the drivers home and later divulge their furnishings to Jim and Margaret. Several of the spied-upon people attested that there was no other way the Irvings could have learned their secrets. If we're being rational about it, the conclusion that Jeff was a hoax is almost unavoidable. Yet, if we're being rational about it, there is no who, how, or why available to adequately explain said hoax. Nandor Fodor came to a different solution. A couple, actually. Eventually, he settled on the theory that Jim Irving had a split personality fostered by boredom and disappointment that took the form of an uncategorizable poltergeist. It is hard to count the number of ways that seems far-fetched, but before that, he first entertained the possibility that Jeff was, in fact, an animal. All the probabilities are against it, but all the evidence is for it, he wrote. Do I believe in him? I have examined the evidence. I have tried all the possible solutions I can think of. None of them answers the case. All the evidence is in favor of Jeff's being a talking animal. He claimed to be an animal. I cannot disprove that claim. The Irvings left Dorlish Cashin shortly after Jim died in 1945. The land was bought by a motorcycle racer named Leslie Graham who said he never heard any mysterious voices or saw anything move within the house. He did, however, claim to have shot a strange animal he thought was Jeff. The size, coloring, and shape of his quarry didn't match the descriptions of Jeff. It was larger, 
longer in black and white, and Vori, when showed the photos of his kill, maintained it was not the mongoose she'd known. Still, no one knows what the animal was, so that is pretty weird. If I believed in poltergeists, or talking animals for that matter, the story of Jeff the Talking Mongoose would be far less unsettling. The belief in magic is the belief in ultimate answers, answers that beget no further questions. The supernatural listens to your questions, your whys and hows, and responds like a surly child simply because. Honest, curious inquiry demands more than that. It demands that you press through question after question and reject belief for its higher-order cousin, confidence. You can believe almost anything you want to about Jeff, but confidence? That's elusive. Which leaves the theories, from the asinine to the obvious, the implausible, the far-fetched, the impossible, and the natural, all on equal and equally shaky footing. And interestingly, the problem of uncertainty, of proteanness, pervades all the most frightening moments of the otherwise silly story of Jeff. As he shifts from weasel to mongoose to spirit, as he grows hands or goes invisible or changes shape, as he whipsaws from inquisitive to gloating, from kindly to enraged. Jeff frequently threatened violence. He even said he was going to shoot the son of a friend of Jim's, and he sometimes called on the devil or the fires of hell itself. Yet, the spookiest quotes I've read from Jeff have to do more with that uncertainty. In one instance, he lashed out at a spiritualist who had the gall to speculate about his true nature in front of him. I know what I am, and you are not going to get to know. And you are only great because I won't tell you. I might let you see me sometime, but thou wilt never get to know what I am. More directly, when Jim told Jeff that F. Martin Duncan thought his hair came from a dog, Jeff screamed, He should not think. He should know. The damn world does not know what I am. Ninety years later, neither does anyone else. Music for today's episode by Lee Rose Vare, Blue Dot Sessions, Dana Boulay, and Gene Austin. Like us, love us, review, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Visit constantpodcast.com to find our social media presences and check out patreon.com slash the constant to join the ever-growing ranks of Constantines who make this show possible. We're a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to some of the finest damn podcasts you've ever heard, including Soonish, where Wade Roush has just dropped a timely and urgent two-part series about the looming clash over the future of democracy in America and how we can win it, not just in November, but for the long haul. Go listen now while the getting's good. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where the ghost of an ostrich, which in 1899 jumped off the high bridge, is said to haunt Lincoln Park, this has been The Constant. Okay, sure. Nobody has said that the ostrich's ghost haunts Lincoln Park before, but maybe they will now.